Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It was a week of some disappointment because Pete Alonso did not win the home run derby. I had to sit there and watch him go through a procession of lesser contestants who lucked into beating him when he was defending his double home run derby crown. But I couldn't be too sad. I couldn't be too angry. You know why? Because it's impossible for me to range too far in my new voice, the new NPK voice. It's just dulcet tones. It doesn't engage anybody in arguments anymore. It just seems to soothe everybody. I was just napping. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say Oof. something? Yeah. Wow. I feel like I'm getting massaged right now. My brain is getting massaged. Where's the shouting? Where's the irritation? We have a few fun subjects to cover this week in dulcet, sweet, lullaby-like tones. I'm done with having people scream at me just because I scream myself like Mad Dog into the microphone. Most of my high-volume screeches and outbursts and rants were unintentionally loud. I'm trying to take a new tack. I'm trying to be level-headed about all this. Which Brooklyn coffee bar will you be doing a reading at this week in a beret? What's your favorite Delta 8 CBD? (laughs) Oh, I don't need any. I'm just naturally high on life. It's clean living that's brought me to this point. Clean living and cello music. A lot of cello music. Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to fall! Shannon! From the corner! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sidelight. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I even in the guys league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog, Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike in a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to show. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! By George, the dream is alive. With speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder, underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Welcome to the Underdogs podcast here where we are. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, 
lunch pail analysts who give you the insights into the world of sports and beyond looking at the perspective from the underdog. I'm Tom Haverstrow. My co-host here, Jordan Brenner, NPK, Peter Keating. Lots to get into this week. It's the summer. We're kind of at a lull in terms of sports, but we do have some interesting baseball storylines here with the underdog runs of the Baltimore Orioles and the Seattle Mariners. We're going to talk about that. We're going to have a vet the bet cooked up for you. And we're also going to get into, yes, it's never too early to talk about fantasy football. We're going to talk a lot about average draft position, what we can learn from a big deep dive into the data. But before we get into the fantasy football stuff, baseball, why did we miss out on the Baltimore Orioles and the Seattle Mariners, Jordan? We were right there. We were talking about underdogs who we were going to pick to go on big runs and big turnarounds in the second half of the season. And it seems like we swung and missed like Joey Gallo. (laughs) That's exactly. We are the Joey Gallo of podcasts. Imagine how good we'd feel if it were the Marlins who'd won 15 straight. What would we be doing right now? Yeah, I even brought up the Texas Rangers. They're like the one team in the division that hasn't gotten on a hot streak this year. To say we didn't see this coming is an understatement, It's and it's pretty cool. I would point out that the Red Sox are now closer to the fifth-place Orioles than they are the third-place Blue Jays in the standings. Big second half turnaround. Yeah. Big post all-star break turnaround. You know, don't sleep on the socks. Turn around in the wrong direction, actually. That's how impressive the Orioles have been. And the Mariners, 14 straight wins. Like, Peter, where did this come from? So I think there's two reasons why it's been easy to miss both of these teams. One is that Seattle played way above their heads last year. They their Their win total last year exceeded their expectations, given how many runs they scored and allowed. By something like 12 games. 14. They were 90 and 72, and their Pythagorean win loss record was 76 to 86. They were outscored by 51 runs. <laughs> so nobody took them, including myself, like I don't think any of us took them seriously because there was that their feeling that they'd be fighting, they'd be coming back down to earth no matter what, and they'd be fighting that force. With Baltimore, it's interesting. I think people who look at these things, do think that Baltimore has a lot of talent on the way, a lot of minor league prospects who, and and the number one pick in this year's draft. But the young players have started to arrive and they're having an impact. It's happening a little earlier than anyone expected. I think people tend to overlook how, because once a team starts to lose, they lose, right? And we don't really care about them much unless you're specifically following that team. But there is a big difference between losing 90 games, which can kind of happen to any team in an offseason, right? Bad luck can produce a 90-loss season. It's a big difference qualitatively, and it's not just the number 20, between losing 90 games and 110 games. The Orioles have been astonishingly bad for a while. And I was thinking, you know, since the Houston Astros tore it all down, lost a hundred games, right? Three years in a row. Did you say tore it all? Tore, <laughs> tore it all down and then didn't have any tore it all. That was not one of the accusations. <laughs> wow. Peter. Is that the underdog secret? Is the <laughs> tore it all for the Baltimore Orioles? I'm not on tore it all, but, but I think <laughs> it's, it actually requires effort to lose games at such a pace that you end up with a very, very high draft pick many years in a row. And very few of those teams combine that organizational mess 
with the acumen to actually pick good players. Now, Houston did it on purpose, right? Houston, you know, leveraged everything they could into losing as big as they could specifically so they could draft great players at the top of the draft. We haven't seen that kind of disregard for current value <laughs> since then. And Baltimore was so bad that they've been able to pile up a bunch of good minor leaguers. And so Baltimore's in a position where they have um, the number one prospect left in the minor leagues who hasn't been called up yet, a guy named Gunnar Henderson, the number one pitching prospect, Grayson Rodriguez. They got the number one pick in this year's draft. And they do have, a, it's, it's funny, they have a couple of pieces that um, are players who are contributing to the team, but are going to be free agents soon. So they could actually sell at this year's trade deadline without giving up all hope because they have more talent on the way and they have a few expiring contracts. So I, I, it, it's happening like two or three years than I would have expected earlier, but I think it's for real. What's interesting to me about Baltimore is I still sort of can't figure out how and why this is happening. We'll talk about Seattle in a second, and you can see the blueprint there. You can see what's working. For Baltimore, it's not a lot of young guys who come up and produce this. Like Adley Rutschman, he's been okay. He's got like a 722 OPS, but he's not tearing the cover off the ball. In fact, they have nobody in their lineup with an OPS better than 779. It's not like they've got this, you know, two or three guys who are just performing it super high level. They don't have a Julio Rodriguez per se. Uh, and, and it's not like they're, they're, they have shut down pitching. Like their, their starting rotation is guys like Jordan Lyles and Tyler Wells and Bruce Zimmerman. Well, there's a great metric over at baseballreference.com, which has the Major League Baseball wins above average by position. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, where is this coming from? It's the relief pitching. The relievers have been outstanding. Mm-hmm. The Orioles mm-hmm. have the highest wins above average for the relievers. Uh, 3.9 wins above average, the best in baseball coming from their relief pitchers. So that's like the hardest thing to predict, right? Relief pitching in baseball is a crapshoot. And so how do they do it? How do they make this big surprise? Well, they're getting a lot of their edge from a place that is really hard to predict. And so, yeah, it's not coming from their bats, really. It's not coming from their starters. It's coming from those relievers who are just lights out this season. That's a great point. And relief pitching, there's so much variance from year to year, as you're saying, which is why probably the best thing the Orioles can do, and we'll get into this a little more when we get further into the trade deadline, is to look to sell some of those relievers for continued, you know, uh, prospects and position players and starting pitchers at the deadline for true contenders who really need to bolster their bullpens. It's, it's, I think of all the things Brian Cashman has done good and bad. The best one was the year the Yankees were, were really not contending and they traded or all this Chapman to the Cubs went on to win a world series and they traded Andrew Miller and they brought back a labor Torres from the Cubs. Uh, I think the, the Andrew Miller deal was what like justice Sheffield and, and Clint Frazier. Um, and they really replenished their prospects by selling relievers. Then they went out yeah. and signed Chapman the following offseason anyway. Because they're the Yankees. They can do that. But there's so much variance year to year. You really can afford to sell high on relievers and then like make some minor league starting pitchers into relievers the next year and do it again. Absolutely. And one of the things that does tend to carry over, one of the few things in, re- in relief pitching, is at least strikeout rates, right? And Jorge Lopez is a genuine strikeout pitcher. Now, I don't know whether the, you think they should sell high on him, but 
he's been, I think his improvement and his strikeout percentage, strikeout percentage is real. His improvement is real. And the Orioles improvement comes from one other, I should mention one other thing. Yes, Adley Rutschman hasn't been that great. And some of these players haven't been that outstanding, but they're better than what the Orioles had before. Adley Rutschman hitting 210 is a drastic improvement over the guys the <laughs> Orioles were running out no. at catcher the last three years, for real. And mm-hmm. one one last thing about Baltimore. They are third in the majors in defensive runs saved with 50, um, which is a good number. Now, maybe that will regress too, but the improvement hasn't just been batted balls or luck in high leverage situations um, it's been all around the defense as well. And, and uh, this is not an analytical thing to say, but because of that, they look better. You watch them. They look like a major league team. They passed the eye test. There were many times, many times the past three years when, and you know, they watch them play the Yankees, for example, right? Who, who the Yankees beat them like a drum forever. They just, they looked like a triple A team. They did. They threw the ball all over the place. The defensive improvements. Interesting. So the Mariners, on the other hand, you could you could see how this might piece together, right? They spent big money on Robbie Ray. They had one of the best young pitchers in baseball in Logan Gilbert. George Kirby was one of the best prospects in baseball. He's come up and performed. So that's immediately three pieces of a rotation. And you've had Marco Gonzalez pitching solidly at the back end. So, okay, there's pitching. And then, right, then you bring up a super prospect who performs like a super prospect in Julio Rodriguez. You get a, a little bit of, you know, an outlier performance from a guy like Ty France. And suddenly you've got pieces falling into place of how this could be a contender. And that's without, by the way, a guy I thought would, would perform Jesse Winker, who they got in, in another Reds dump. He's not doing anything. He's got a 691 OPS. So I guess you could say there's room for even more improvement. And of course, Peter, you'll like this. Uh, Jared, how do you pronounce the last name? Kalenic? Kalenic, yeah. Kalenic, key of the 140 batting average. Suddenly that Edwin Diaz trade doesn't look as bad as everybody said, but he's done nothing. So... Again, there's there's young pieces there who haven't quite performed, but but you could, like you could see the shape of what the Mariners could become, right? Yeah, and just like the the Orioles, it feels like they have a lot more upside here. So if Kalenic kind of puts things together, and I've picked him up and dropped him so many times, <laughs> I think I've sworn him off. I can't do it anymore. If he actually translates to the major league level, they're gonna have so much more upside here. So like. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves and just get too excited about these streaks, but it does feel like Jordan and Peter that they're only kind of scratching the surface in some ways. Yeah, you got to figure between Winker, Kalenic, Kalenic, I'm sorry, and Mitch Haniger, who's been out all basically all year, that at least one more big bat is going to come alive in an outfield spot. And um, and my gosh, I mean Julio Rodriguez. Uh, that's, that, I mean, he's the real deal and he's just going to keep improving and improving, right? I mean, it's fairly amazing what he can do. So let me ask you guys then, trade deadline coming up within two weeks, you're the Orioles, are you buying or selling? You're the Mariners, are you buying or selling? If I'm the Orioles, I'm selling, especially in the AL East. I can't imagine that they're going to be able to um, make even more strides this year. I think it's probably going to be a more pragmatic position and understanding that like, we can't really go and put all our chips in. We should be continuing, like you said, to find value in the draft and continue to build the long term and sell off these relievers for teams that are desperate for some help on the back end. So yeah, I think they're going to be sellers. If if I'm the Orioles, I put everybody on the relief core. Is there any argument to be made that you've had a fan base who has had nothing to root for for so long that you try to sell them on with an extra wild card now there's some value in contending just for the fans. 
even though you don't think you have a shot in hell at winning a World Series. Yeah, but the problem is the guy the fans love the most and who could bring you back the most is the same guy, is Trey Mancini. Good guy, great story. He's been there through all the hard times. The fans really love him. He, for that underdog, he's going to be a free agent and he could help somebody like the Yankees. I mean, so that's where, that's that's the acid test. Like, are they going to be cold-blooded enough to trade maybe just the guys whose contracts are up this year and next year and hold on to, I mean, yes, obviously somebody like Jordan Lyles, who whose record is is not as good as his underlying statistics. It never is. So you wonder when it's all just going to run out on him. And he's not terrible, but yeah, they should get stuff for guys like that. But but um, Mancini's going to be the interesting case. Mariners, what are you doing? You guys are the GM of the Mariners. I load up. Yeah. Who's your competition? What are you, half a game behind Cleveland right now for a wild card spot? I mean, okay, so so maybe you're not as good as, or you can't hope to beat Houston, but as wild card teams or as playoff contenders other than Houston the Yankees, who scares you if you're Seattle? You don't want to say, oh, our big acquisition is... Mitch Hanniger coming back or anything like that. You make a, you make a couple targeted moves. Yeah, well, I think I think it's much different than the Orioles. The Orioles right now in Fangrass have a one point five percent chance at winning the or making the playoffs. One point five percent chance. They're forty six and forty six. Meanwhile, the Guardians are forty six win team and they have a thirty percent chance of making the playoffs. And that just speaks to how hard that AL East is. And yes, there's wild cards and um, but it's just so it's going to be really difficult for the Orioles to make a move that changes their odds dramatically. The marginal win there is not very high. However, with the Mariners, um, they have a 1.7% chance at winning it all. Mm. They actually have a non-zero chance at winning the entire World Series, and that's right now with their uh, with their team. So they have a 68% chance of making the playoffs, two-thirds chance. I say they, they push their chips in. Um, and look, the Mariners, when, when was the last time the Mariners were really good? It's been since Randy, right? Randy and Ken Griffey. Brett Boone. Yeah. The Brett Boone season. Jay Buhner. They had one fun season since then and it, and it didn't, and it really literally won and it didn't last. Seattle should take the shot, right? At making the playoffs kind of at all costs where it's more like Baltimore has to focus on building a long-term, very good team like the Rays because of the division they're in, right? Right. But it is, it is fascinating to think about. This has made the trade deadline so much more interesting with a couple more teams now that you have to think about which way they're going to go. And then, you know, obviously there's the Juan Soto thing sitting out there, but there's also just the general, what do the best teams do within reason to improve either marginally or significantly their chances of winning a World Series. Last year, we saw the Dodgers go all in with stars, Trey Turner, an in-season acquisition, Max Scherzer, an in-season acquisition. But that's not always the case. And, and Peter, I know I had some thoughts on this, and then you went and did some research on the area where sort of teams are able to make the most sort of in-season marginal adjustments. Well, looking at since the second wild card we added, so looking over the years, one kind of transaction just jumps out. Um, the Cardinals picked up John Axford in 2013. Uh, the Mets picked up Addison Reed in 2013. Tony Watson for the Dodgers in 2017. Maybe the most famous case, Daniel Hudson in 2019 for the Nationals, he had 144 ERA down the stretch and then was 1-0 with four saves in the first three rounds of the playoffs. Um, last year, completely overlooked when people are talking about impact deals. You know, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner went to Los Angeles. 
But for the price of, and I want to get this right, two minor leaguers named Diego Castillo and Hoy Park, the Yankees picked up Clay Holmes. And all he's done since then in, in under 70 innings is uh, post 78 strikeouts, 13 walks, an ERA under two, and displaced Aroldis Chapman as the closer for the best team in baseball. So because, you know, on the stretch run, there aren't many all that many games left. There's half a season left. It's hard. It's hard to go pick up a Trey Turner, right? But if you pick up a guy who can stick into high leverage situations as a relief pitcher, limit him to one time through the order, you know, emphasize his best pitch, and then luck out on that on that usage, you can you, you these te- again and again and again teams pick up guys who end up having very high impact as relievers whose superficial stats didn't look that great before they arrived. Now look. There's two sides to every trade. You mentioned Chapman before, and the Yankees made out when they got Chapman and they got Chapman back, but they really made out when they traded him, right? So sometimes you can make out as the seller on these trades. If you get rid of a reliever, you can get long-term talent back. So sometimes these trades are even win-wins, but I will be watching the relievers on transit, you know, as, as we head towards the trade deadline because they're often the guys who fill a uh, really – High leverage, high impact role. And then the question is: Do you do you give up things of real value for such a, a fluky position? Right. If if you're God, I you know, I, I get it. I get that what the Cubs did. We come back to Aldous Chapman, right? You haven't won a World Series in in a hundred years. You're going to give up whatever to find someone you think puts you over the top. But to give up a, a major prospect for a guy who is playing in an unpredictable position as a, as a say a middle reliever. And where the replacement level, again, might just be promoting a minor league starter. We've seen how many times, you know, when suddenly they only have to pitch an inning at a time and throw two pitches. You know, the, the Chad Greens of the world come out quick and awesome. What would you give up for a player like that? Well, doesn't it depend on whether you really trust that the guy's a good pitcher or you're just trying to fill a spot that's been a, a kind of a, a sore spot for you all season with, with, a, with a warm body? I mean, some of the relievers being discussed around this deadline are actually really quality relievers like David Bednar, Pittsburgh, and Tanner Scott in Miami. And I think that they're getting mentioned because good teams who evaluated those as being good pitchers are going to try to vulture them cheap, right? On the other hand, we're talking about the Orioles. The Orioles are stacked with guys whose FIP is like a run or two runs higher than their ERAs. So Felix Bautista looks good. His ERA is under two. His FIP is 3.19. Um, Clonel Perez, or is it, it's, it's CNL, right? CNL Perez, um, same deal, bigger, even a bigger gap guys like Dylan Tate, you know, Jorge Lopez is a quality pitcher, but I'm sure the Orioles would like to dump some of these other guys whose ERA is made better by the Orioles defense and try to get something back for them. So, I mean, you know, you got to go for guys with 40% strikeout rates and then you can give out some, some quality in return, I think. I mean, who would you go after if you were if you were a contending but not sure thing team that you were looking to shore up your bullpen? Um, I mean, who is this year's Addison Reed or Tony Watson where you flip the right switches and um, you get them? What would you be What would you be willing to give up? I mean, I think Bed- Bednar Bednar is an excellent target, right? And that's a that's a different sort of that's a different kettle of fish, right? Because he's under team control for a couple more years as well. Yeah. So the question is. There's no reason for them to trade him 
unless they're getting a significant haul back, right? It's not like a guy who's, whose contract expires after the season who you'll dump and take anything because he has no value left to you. Yeah, but you know, some of these teams, again, talking about Baltimore, where the owner's sons are suing each other and the management management has been uber cheap and made it made took took the moments right before the the draft to announce that they weren't going to go way over slot for anybody, just to remind the world that as exciting as their talent acquisition has been, they're still going to stay uber cheap. It's Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh dumps guys as soon as they get the first inkling that a, a player might cost them more than they want to pay. And sometimes that's before, that's while the guy's still in his arbitration years with some of these teams that don't want to spend money, as, as, as crazy as that seems. You know, as soon as the guy gets good, they start to worry that he's going to he's going to cost them too much money. So I wouldn't see Pittsburgh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Pittsburgh move anybody. It is amazing when you go back and look how many big moves from one year you forget about the year after, okay? So I'm going to give you two teams involved in a trade last season you tell me who the players were okay it's 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 uh it's not quite vet the bet but it's uh how well do you remember the trade deadline okay grade the trade the braves and royals made a trade last year the braves won the world series after acquiring this player who was he oh that's jorge soler right okay this that is jorge come on (laughs) come on okay schooled again they picked up jock peterson too jordan uh they remade their whole outfield wow okay bring it bring it Bring it, Brenner. Come on. Whoa, whoa. NPK. Calm down, NPK. I'm very pleased with my choice of Jorge Soler. There was a trade across Chicago last year between the, the White Sox and Cubs as the White Sox looked to beef up for the playoffs. Who was the uh, key player who was in that deal? Jordan, baby. Nick Madrigal was the one who came back. Come on. I don't give two sheets about what you're talking <laughs> about here. <laughs> Get it? Been there, done that. Was that Gavin Sheets? That's right. You don't mean Ben Sheets. You meant Gavin Sheets. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the answer, of course, was Craig Kimbrell. And he was traded for Nick Madrigal, Jordan. I just gave you the harder player. How about the amazing Mets-Cubs trade last year that, you know, set the Mets up for a decade? You mean Javi Baez? Yes, Javi Baez. Who'd they give up? Pete Crow Armstrong, right? The minor leaguer? Uh, oh, wow. Jordan doesn't even have- Yes, Pete Crow Armstrong. That is correct. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mace. Whoa. I'm whoa. sorry, Mace. I meant to say, oh, oh, exclamation points, <laughs> exclamation point. Jordan, I'm naming the minor leaguers in the deal you've posited would be hard for us to- Well, I still think it's hard to remember these things. <laughs> the trade deadline is August 2nd, so we have a little bit of run up before that happened. And maybe some teams can turn around their championship odds. What's that? Do you guys hear that? That's Vet the Bet! Let's go! Oh, yes! It is here! Buckle in! Hold on to your butts! It is time to Vet the Bet, everyone's favorite, hottest new game show on the internet. This is where I ask you guys to vet the bet, and here's how it works. I reach research the history of a particular bet. I'll set the line or give you a multiple choice question, and you have to make your pick. Jordan, Peter, I could do an over-under, or I could do a true-false. I could do a multiple choice, A, B, C, D, or E, and you guys have to put in your guesses. Are you guys ready to vet the bet? Born ready. The challenge has been met. It will be an upset if Jordan does not go further into debt. We are ready and set 
to vet. Right now, the Los Angeles Dodgers are the favorites to win the World Series, according to DraftKings odds right now. Coming out of the All-Star break, the Dodgers are the favorite. Just slight favorite at plus 380, just a hair above the, uh, the New York Yankees. Which brings us to the vet the bet question of the day. If you bet the favorite at the All-Star break, $100 on every favorite every year since 2009, you would have A, profited $800. You made $800. B, made $400. C, lost $400. D, lost $800. Or E, lost all your money, $1,200 if you bet $100 on the favorite coming out of the All-Star break. What is your answer, Jordan? I'm trying to quickly go through in my mind how many times the favorite has even won. And certainly you wouldn't have won last year, obviously, with the Braves. The Braves won with late season acquisition Jorge Soler. I'm going to go D was you would have lost $800. Is that correct? Yes. I'm going to go D. I'm going to say favorites have not done that. But I will say choice B. You'll be ahead, but not by a lot. 400 bucks. The answer is C. <clears throat> Lost $400. Neither of you are correct. You guys need to step up your game. So only two hits. There have been only two hits if you bet $100 on the favorite coming out of the All-Star break. Right, but that's enough to cover some of the losses. Yeah, I should That's right. So sportsoddshistory.com, such a great resource for things like this. If you want to research and vet your own bets, go check out sportsoddshistory.com. I found, you know, the Braves last year at plus 4,000 at the All-Star break, 13th best odds or 13th uh, odds to win the champion or the uh, World Series. And the Dodgers were, again, plus 375, and they did not win it, of course. 2019, the Nationals were plus 2,400, the ninth place. 2018, the Red Sox were four, plus 475 at second place. The Astros in 2017 were the favorite at the All-Star break and did end up winning the World Series. Uh, they were at plus 390, first best odd uh, to win it all. And 2016, right before that, we have back-to-back hits on the favorite. The Cubs were plus 405, the favorite coming out of the All-Star break, and they ended up winning uh, the World Series. But the Royals before that were fourth. The Giants before that were seventh. The Red Sox were second. The Giants were fifth. The Cardinals were eighth. And the Giants in 2010 were 15th. The Yankees were number two in 2009. This is where I'm off. The Red Sox were not the favorite in 2013. That's correct. They were just, they were second play, second favorite in 2013. This might have been my favorite vet the bet. Because it didn't just require, it required a second level of thinking, right? So it was, how often have the favorites won? And then, well, it's not even odds, right? You're getting, you're making a nice profit if you bet the favor and they win. So how much does that compensate for all the the other teams losing? Good work, Tom. Excellent. Thank you. And the Dodgers never won as the favorite? They were never the favorite? They were the favorite last year and they didn't win. Uh, They were also the favorite in 2019 and they did not win. This is my second favorite bet of the week. Oh yeah. Followed only by my winning ticket on Cam Smith <laughs> at the British Open giving me the betting grand slam of having a having a winning ticket on 
a player in each of the four majors this year. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That's no Pete Crow Armstrong, but- Was I saving that for the right moment? Yes, I was. Do you actually have uh, winnings? I do. Are you taking your family out to dinner? What are you doing with your hard-earned winnings? I'm going to get you a new microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Old one's blown out. Speaking of blown out. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I'm going to see how you land this plane. (laughs) Oh, man. I've been the subject of many fantasy football blowouts in recent years. But I got to tell you. (laughs) A lot of turbulence, but he has landed the plane. Okay. At least it wasn't somebody's ACL. But I got to tell you, one ACL can change your whole fortunes in fantasy football. (laughs) Speaking of of tearing it up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's time to talk about fantasy football. And if you're like me, you've kind of seen this evolution in the game where it started out, if you just knew a lot about football, you were in good shape. And then it was, well, there's stuff starting to appear on this thing called the internet. If you knew where to find it, you were in good shape. Now it's everything is everywhere. There's too much data. There's people who do this for a living 365 days of, out of the year. There's, it's almost paralysis by analysis. You can go zero running back strategy. You can run any kind of league you want. There's, you know, someone will make a case for just about any running back in anyone's roster that he's going to be a breakout player. It's, it's um, exhausting as you try to prepare for your draft. So what we want to do on this podcast is take a step back. So for the next few weeks... We want to sort of start from scratch a little bit and just ask some very basic questions and dig deeper from there. And hopefully you're going to come along on this journey with us, you, the, the listener. In fact, we want to hear from you um, on Twitter is probably the easiest way to do that, at Jordan Brenner, at Peter Keating, NJ, at Tom Haverstrow. And we want to sort of know what you want to study in the fantasy football world. But we're going to get you started this week. So what we did, the great site fantasydata.com has information going back several years on fantasy points scored and ADP, average draft position. So what we wanted to look at just in general, this is the Underdogs podcast. And so 
where do underdogs in fantasy football come from? And the first step in that, obviously, is to look at where guys were drafted compared to how they perform. So we did that, and we found what I think is some interesting data just just at the most basic level, just on, on which positions tend to produce more variance and just how far down the list you go to, to find breakout players, right? Right, guys? Yeah, so one way to do this is to look at correlations. Um, you essentially look at how closely does one column line up with the next column? So is it true that if you draft uh, a running back in order, they'll have the same order of their fantasy points? So it's a one-to-one relationship. And usually you would say, yeah, running backs are pretty hard to pin down. There's a lot of injuries, role changes, just a lot of unpredictability there. But we've kind of assumed that. Um, I think as we get deeper into the weeds on fantasy football, you kind of lose the trees a little bit, the forest. You want to be able to see, is it true that running back position is the most unpredictable in terms of what order you draft them in and how many points do those players contribute? And actually, Peter, you ran the numbers and you found like let's start with quarterbacks, running backs, tight ends, and wide receivers that actually their correlation, their strength between their average draft position and how many fantasy points they, if you rank the players one to 100 or one to 100 on each of those categories, the one-to-one relationship doesn't exist for the running backs. It's really unpredictable, right? Yeah, the one-to-one relationship doesn't exist for anybody, but we'd expect some unpredictability the relationship is strongest for quarterbacks. If you line up quarterbacks in the order that they're drafted, that has a pretty pretty fair correlation with the points that they go on to produce that season in fantasy. They, they measure out at 0.5 on a scale of 0 to 1. For running backs, it's down at 0.3. That's a moderate correlation. But that means if you line up running backs in the order they're drafted, you got to jumble up that list a lot before you get what the their actual production is and the other thing about that is is that um, the variation among quarterbacks who are drafted. In other words, if you line up players from best to worst, who has the biggest? Which positions have the biggest differences among best to worst? The, the differences among quarterbacks are much narrower, actually, than the differences among running backs. Wide, wide receivers are in the middle on both counts. Um, so what you have is a situation where Quarterbacks are both more predictable and there's also less spread among them. There's less disaster if you happen to get a quarterback who's not the best. Now, this is just on average, right? Sure. I mean, the 25th best quarterback um, and he has a bad season, you're really in not in a good place. But you're probably in a worse place almost for sure if you end up not drafting a running back, getting a running back who you're just kind of filling in with, and he doesn't have a good season. So there's more variation among running backs and also less predictability overall in how they're going to do. And this explains, obviously, why player, why fantasy teams now, the strategy is to wait significantly on quarterbacks, even though they, they produce the most fantasy points. That lack of variance means you're, you're just fine deciding to go with QB 11 instead of pulling the trigger on QB1 several rounds earlier, plus you only start one quarterback. So whereas the, the marginal running back is on every roster, the marginal quarterback is not. And if you're a, if you're a significant fantasy football player, you know all this, but I think it's worth repeating as we sort of build toward bigger stuff. 
quarterbacks is safer in this analysis is that you can peg them a lot easier. You can predict them a lot easier. And I, I don't know if that means that you wait on them. I think if there's a stud quarterback, I feel a whole lot better about drafting him higher because they're more predictable. But if that stud quarterback only gives you sort of a narrow difference, if the difference between Josh Allen and uh, Justin Herbert or someone even a little lower down the list, you know, uh, Jalen Hurts is marginal at best. Yeah, Mays is chiming in with with Captain Kirk. Kirk Cousins will always just go somewhere late in the draft and put up solid fantasy numbers that you're not getting a big marginal advantage. And the upside is limited as well. The thing is that I've noticed is that while all of that's true, it doesn't seem to apply to wide receivers as much as maybe it should. You also need to start two wide receivers. The average wide receiver going back 10 years and all the numbers that you collected, looking at them, uh, the average regular player who's a wide receiver uh, scores 140 points a season. Running backs, it's higher, but not that much higher. It's 159. Again, the correlation where pe- where players are drafted and how well they do, it's, um, it's a little stronger for wide receivers. They're a little more predictable than running backs. And the variation among you know, the big, the spread um, among the best and the worst players is a little bigger for wide receivers, but not that much bigger. And I'm wondering why you think the lists are dominated. You can see why the lists are dominated by running the top of draft lists are dominated by running backs versus quarterbacks. I'm wondering why they're also dominated by running backs versus wide receivers. If you have a, you know, why, why does the top Number, let's say the number five running back looks so much better right now to fantasy football players than the number five or number 10 wide receiver. Well, there, first of all, there's only one starting running back per team, right? And then with timeshares and situational substitutions and the rest of that, the number of true bell cow running backs, as we know, has gone down and down and down and down. So if you can lock in significant running back production, it's a huge advantage over every other team, whereas everybody's throwing the ball. Most teams have multiple guys who can put up numbers, you know, at least reasonable numbers as wide receivers. So, again, outside of – and look, you've had Devontae Adams going in the first round. You've had players like that. But those few elite, truly elite running backs or at least presumed elite running backs are so rare that you can't afford to pass on them. At least that's been the general thinking in drafts recently until this zero RB strategy has come – into play for those who are sort of more risk seeking and realize that so many guys appear on waivers when injuries happen and, and whatnot that lock in safe receivers, a QB, a great tight end, and then you know stream and and hustle and find and maybe make a trade and get some running backs later. That's sort of this new wave of doing it. it. It takes some balls. Yeah. And and I think the other thing is is that I think when you're looking at running backs, I mean think about all the first round running backs last year that got hurt right? Think about all the injuries to running backs. I feel like that creates a lot of variance and it seems safe to go with the running back because like in in basketball, we talk about, Hey, why don't big men be, why aren't they like closers? Why aren't big men closers? And the answer is because it's a lot easier for a ball handler to become a closer because you don't have to feed the ball handler the ball. He already has the ball. So for running backs, it seems like Okay, I can I know I'm getting those carries because it's just the handoff is a lot cleaner, it's more predictable, and I can gar- I can probably bank a lot more um, rushes 
Whereas with a wide receiver, you're depending on the quarterback, the drop back, and and then also the pass getting there. There's a lot more chances for uncertainty, chances for that to screw up. So I think it in our head, running backs seem a lot more dependable because of that. But the problem is injuries. Injuries are decimating the running back position. And I just kind of feel like I don't like running back value anymore. But the analytics do do a backup what you were saying too. The single biggest correlation with uh, running back production is um, touches. Yep. So you bank on volume, and that should play. That said, you had seasons where you see a team's offensive line crumble, and suddenly hit, the running back's value goes down. Or season where the, they lose their quarterback, and suddenly they stack the box. You saw it with Ezekiel Elliott a couple of years ago. You've seen what happened to Saquon Barkley with the Giants with a bad offensive line. So it's not like there's it's purely uh, opportunity based, but over the the larger sample, it is touches equals success. Yes, predicting those touches is really hard, though. So let me give you some names from last year of guys who significantly outperformed their their ADP as running backs. Okay, and then you're going to see why the next steps of this process is so hard. Okay, guys who did really well compared to where they were drafted. James Conner, pretty much thought to be in a timeshare with the Cardinals with Chase Edmonds last year, and just sort of emerged from that. Edmonds had some injuries. Damian Harris with the Patriots. You sent 10, you know, again, they had, you, you had rookies getting hyped up in the preseason or Ramondre Stevenson here. You had, you, you never can trust a Bill Belichick running back situation. That was dicey. Harris ended up being the guy. Elijah Mitchell. Well, Raheem Mostert gets hurt on like his second carry of the season. And then Trey Sermon was the higher drafted 49ers running back. So you would have thought that was the guy who was going high in drafts, but it was Mitchell who proved to be, I think he was a sixth round pick in the actual NFL draft, and he outperformed his fellow rookie, Trey Sermon, and became a starter on a playoff team. Leonard Fournette was supposed to be back. He had great playoffs for the Bucs when they won the Super Bowl, but then he was supposed to be back in a timeshare from with Ronald Jones. Instead, he took a step even further forward as, as, a, as a dual threat running back, catching the ball and running. Cordero Patterson used to be a wide receiver, <laughs> okay? And Mike Davis was a, was a very trendy high pick for the Falcons, and Patterson displaced him. That wasn't even an injury thing. Rashad Penny had been a bust as a first-round pick for the Seahawks. Chris Carson gets hurt like usual, finally gets his shot and produces. Duke Johnson had been passed around to about 17 different teams and then puts up a couple monster games late for the Dolphins. I knew you were going to work Duke in here somehow. <laughs> somehow Duke was going to find a way into fantasy football. Go ahead. The point is there's so little in common about what led to these players getting increased opportunities. There's so little in common about where they were in their careers, what their pedigree was, et cetera, that it, it, again, it makes it, you take a step back and like, holy shit, how am I going to find this guy this year? But that's what we're going to work on for the next month. We're going to work on finding that guy for you. I think that finding those situations is going to prove to be most difficult of all at running back for all of, in all of the cases like what is there a common thread running through all of those cases you just mentioned? Whereas I think with wide receivers, there will be guys shifted in and out of the slot. There will be different schemes or coaches you can identify. Um, there are probably probably injuries are either more serious. It's probably fewer great comebacks from unpredictable injuries among wide receivers um, than we've seen with running backs. I I think when you know everything you're talking about means all this acceleration in data means fans also have to get more into individual team circumstances. I think when we do that, 
we're going to find there's more, there's more, a little bit, even though wide receivers score fewer points and there's less variation, um, there's probably going to be more predictability from year to year to year because of this environment we're in where running backs just get injured all the time. That's our next step is to look at how things go from year to year, not just from draft to season. I was looking at the list that you gave us, Peter, which is players that were drafted low. Um, so I think it was, what was the cutoff for the average, uh, the ADP for some of these high performers in the, in the tables that you gave us, Peter? Is it top 75 ADP? For the running backs, it was around 75. For the wide receivers, about as 100. It was guys who were drafted above the average draft position for their, uh, for their position. So it was wide receivers drafted at above average slots for wideouts, running backs drafted at above average slots for running backs. And if they were drafted below that, basically it's top 75 for running backs, yeah. top 100 for for wide receivers. If you're drafted below that and still went on to score 10 or more points a game, we did it that I did it that way, looking per game to allow for midseason replacements. Got it. Then okay. we classified them as, you know, this kind of breakout player or unexpected performance. And there there's not there's not all that many. There are about 20 over the past 10 years for wideouts and 37 for running backs. So it's a handful of players per year who emerge from the basically the bottom half of your draft to be really good fantasy players. One thing that really jumped out at me when I looked at that table was how many rookies and second-year players were at the very top of that list. So you had Devontae Freeman in 2015 as a second-year guy. Uh, 2017, Camara. You had... Uh, James Conner in 2018, second-year guy. James Robinson, of course, won a bunch of fantasy leagues uh, two years ago as the rookie from, uh, from the, for the Jags. Then you had Jordan Howard in 2016 with Chicago, rookie season, way outperforming expectations. And then, he, of course, in la- last couple years in the wide receiver rankings, some of the diamonds in the rough, Justin Jefferson, rookie, rookie season coming out of Minnesota, Mike Evans in 2014 with Tampa Bay, rookie season. And then of course, Amonra St. Brown last year, won a bunch of fantasy leagues as a rookie. And I'm just wondering if that is something we want to look at going forward is, are rookies undervalued? Are we so just got the blinders on about the data in the NFL that we kind of don't really know how these rookies are going to perform or young guys are going to perform in the NFL. And maybe there's some value in identifying some rookies into the next season and see if that's an actual value play. Yeah, I think there's two things about that. One is whatever you think the average age is for peak performance in the NFL at running back or wide receiver, subtract two or three years. I mean, injuries are pandemic and your best bet to get a lot of points out of it. I mean, if you could pick one thing to say, I know this stat about some guy, right? Some player to predict how well he's going to do or how many, well he's going to do in fantasy. I might go with age, with youth. I mean, that's one thing. The second thing is, is that for all of this advances in data and, you know, strategizing over fantasy football, the, the world is still not that great. None of us are at mapping college performance into pro performance. That's, that's, that's a huge next frontier for all of analytics. And so, yes, rookies, value. Go look at, go, go find rookies who are going to enter schemes that you think will bring out the best in them. And with discernible roles. So, for instance, last year, a really, um, a guy 
people really like as a sleeper based on both the trends in what's been going on in the wide receiver position and the way this offense was going to function was Rondell Moore with Arizona. Thought you'd be a guy who'd get a lot of jet sweeps. They'd throw, but well, basically all they did was throw him the ball behind the line of scrimmage like once or twice a game, and he did nothing. And it was it was frustrating, and they didn't seem to use him to his advantage. But also, maybe they maybe we all just guessed wrong on how good he was, right? So yes, this year they're talking about getting him the ball again, yada yada yada. But it can be tricky. So you can you can do all the analysis Peter's talking about and still just get it wrong, and that's why fantasy football is so frustrating. Yeah, we don't have average draft position for Randy Moss's rookie season. But I think he was probably the greatest, as a rookie, the greatest value pick in any fantasy draft ever, right? I mean, I, I, I was in a fantasy league at that point, and a team picked him number one, and we all started yelling, drug test, drug test. Not for Randy, for the people who drafted him. Good save there, buddy. But look how, look how it worked out. I mean, you've tore it all. <laughs> don't pick running backs who have been heavy, heavily subjected to Toradol use. Right. So I do think the next step for us is we sort of, like I said, we embark on this multi-week voyage by, led by Captain NPK. We should take a look at <laughs> the guys who have the most divergent seasons from expectations. What, if anything, do they have in common? To summarize the big nugget from this week's stab at this analysis, from lowest correlation to highest correlation by position, we have kickers and defenses at 0.14 correlation coefficient then you have running backs wide receivers tight ends and then the strongest easiest to predict is the quarterback so again defenses and kickers super hard kind of intuitively we know that that's super hard to predict um, from the draft night on and then you have running backs crapshoot Wide receivers, a little bit more predictable. Tight ends, a little bit more predictable than wide receivers. But the big clear winner here is the quarterback position. And again, we want to engage with you guys as we sort of embark on this underdog journey of fantasy football. So hit us up on Twitter, at Tom Haberstroh, at Peter Keating NJ, at Jordan Brenner, and you know, maybe Tom will answer you. As we wrap up here, I am just stunned if we had to vet the bet on how late Jordan Brenner would be making his announcement that he hit another golf major pick. That was way later than I thought. I thought you'd be opening the show with that. I was stuttering during our opening because I assumed Jordan would have like a pony, a bugle player, a putter. I thought he was going to be doing the show from a little artificial green inside his house. Like I, I'm a little disappointed, actually. I thought there was going to be a little more fanfare. Got to keep him guessing. So you hit all four majors in golf? Yeah, I mean, look, again, I didn't I want to downplay my brilliance a little bit in that I <laughs> clip that. I didn't make one bet per tournament. I bet four or five guys each time, so that's pretty damn good. Well, thank you. It was nice. Compared to my uh, betting on other subjects, golf has proven quite fruitful. Compared to your performance on Bet the Vet. Oh my god. Bet the Bet. Bet the Vet. Bet the Vet was our old horse racing question. <laughs> bet the Vet. <laughs> Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. 
My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.